Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Let's read it together. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Great word. Let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, once again, we're grateful for this freedom to gather as a body of believers under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And in this room, Lord, we seek to honor you through the course of our time together. As we open your word, as we read it, as we open our hearts to what it is saying to us, not only corporately, but individually we pray you would bless and anoint the hearing of your word to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please be seated. Welcome also to those of you who are watching at home. Uh, an honor always to be brought into your living room and to have a place in your lives, even though it is via technology. We encourage you to come and enjoy uh, what it means to gather together uh, critically as well. So, as we come to this uh, portion of chapter 6, the author, if you've been studying with us, going through uh, this series, I mean, Hebrews is a, is a series of studies, and the author has been dealing with uh, primarily two things in chapter 6. A warning and an exhortation. And we dealt uh, real clearly with the first 12 verses last week in which the warning that the author has given to his readers, uh, to summarize it, was simply this, that those that have an impressive uh, spiritual experience and he gave a list of those experiences, of course, in verses 4 and 5. That it does not exclude someone from, from completely falling away. That those impressive spiritual experiences can be, one or two of them can relate to salvation, or can simply be experiences that, that outwardly appear to be in the life of someone that has come to Christ genuinely, but that if that is the case in someone's life, that the end of that precious life, instead of it being useful and retaining blessings from God, that there are thorns and briars and a burning, verses 7 and 12, uh, 7 and 8. And then the author goes on to say, now, though I've spoken to you in this manner, he knows that those verses and that letter and that tone in there intended to warn his Hebrew brethren of slipping back into religious mechanism as opposed to a right relationship with God, which now and then was only available through Christ not through obedience to a law. 
having moving, having moved forward, he then now brings his uh, articulation to the subject of exhorting those that he is more confident of better things for them. We saw that, if you're backing up a little bit, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 6. He begins to exhort those that he is confident of better things than someone just having impressive spiritual experiences. And he moves into seeking to exhort them to not be discouraged. It may have been, and certainly it was, difficult in the Jewish religious community to have stepped away from a lifelong uh, association with Judaism and adherence to law and animal sacrifice and the Sabbath and all of those things that go along with it, to step away from that and say, now know uh, Christ and Christ alone is why I am convinced that I have a relationship with God. There were those some 30 years into the inception of the church at this point. 30 years after Pentecost. The discouragement was coming and, and finding its way into the heart of those believers. We talked a little bit about it, discouragement last week and we will again today. But he wanted to remind them in verse 10 of chapter 6 that God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love which you have shown toward his name in that you minister to the saints and do minister. Don't be discouraged. God has not forgot about you. Because the author knows, as this, the Holy Spirit of God knows, as God himself the Father knows, and our Savior knows, is that discouragement, if left to itself, if someone finds themselves who is a believer in Christ, now becoming discouraged in their faith, if left to itself, it can lead to, in someone's walk, a lack of maturing, a lack of growing in the, in the depth of Christ, a becoming sluggish in one's faith, and thus the exhortation, not the warning, but the exhortation continues in verse 11 when... As we read, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end and that you do not become sluggish. Notice it there. But, and there's that transformative word which separates which was in front of it with what comes after it. But, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. In other words, become one who is inheriting the hope that is set before you. Is that your testimony this morning? Is it mine? Those of you watching at home, is it yours? 
that you are in fact one who is becoming an inheritor of the hope that has been set before you. I'm prompted this morning that the best way for us to understand what the writer means by this exhortation, what it means to be one who is inheriting the hope that is set before, is to simply go through these verses in front of us. Step by step, line upon line, precept upon precept, as Isaiah tells us in chapter 28 of his message. That's what we're going to do. We take a few minutes to just walk through some of these verses in the endeavor to gain a clear understanding of the hope that is set before us. I draw your attention to verse 13. We read in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Now, I raise a question to some of you who've been reading your Bible for a year or a handful of years or maybe quite a few years. Where and when did God make a promise to Abraham? Some of you probably go, oh, yeah, I know, right. I, I, I know he did, he did. Where is it? Some of you might even be able to chapter and verse. I love youth group at times will play swords up. You ever heard of that? The Bible's closed. You've got to hold your sword up. Sword's up. Okay? And so you'll say, Genesis 12. And so you... Now, if you have tabs on your Bible, is that cheating? No. Genesis 12. God speaks to Abraham, right? You recall the account. And we find that it is there that God actually gives Abraham a sevenfold promise. Remember what it was? I'll read it for you. Genesis 12, verse 2. It's actually 1 through 3. Um, he speaks to Abraham, God does, and he says, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. That in itself is a great study. God saying, go, leave, start walking, get out. I'm calling you to go forward. And don't worry, at some point, I will show you where you're to go. You ever felt like, but Lord, I can't pick up my bags and just go until you tell me where. He says, no, 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 I'm asking you to step out in faith and believe me that I will speak to you along the way. It's a study in and of, of itself. And then in verse 2, the promise or promises begin. Chapter 12 of Genesis, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Sevenfold promise. Genesis chapter 12. You knew that, right? You said, oh yeah, I got that check. Okay. Ah, 
But where was it that God made a promise to Abraham and sealed it with an oath? Yes, of course. It comes later on in Abraham's life and his experience. But before we, we land on that, that seventh promise that God made to Abraham in, in those sevenfold promises in Genesis 12, he said, and in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I am curious at times how much of the Old Testament and its, its totality that the, the church today understands and knows. Do you know and understand that it's an important thing to study the Old Testament? No, we do not live by the law, but there are principles all woven from the beginning to, it, to its end. Jesus said to the religious leaders, he said, you do think, you search the scriptures, for in them you think there is life, but they are which testify of me. Christ is in here from Genesis to Malachi. And it is an important and valuable and growing thing to study and read this Old Testament. For in that seventh promise is a forward casting of a shadow to you and I this morning, to the New Testament church. In you, Abraham, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, well... Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, made it very clear, Galatians 3.8, and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. In other words, every human being that is not of Jewish Hebrew background, God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians 3.16, Paul goes on to say, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say to his seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ, Galatians 3, 28 and 29, for there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there slave nor free, neither is there male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Woo-hoo, man, all the way from right there in the beginning God looked forward to your life and mine, to the life of the New Testament church, and said, Abraham, here's number seven. In you, all the families of the earth will have the opportunity to know the blessing of God once having come to Christ. Now, where did, he, where did God uh, make a promise to Abraham and seal it with an oath? Well, it comes much later, as I said, in Abraham's life all the way over to that classic and yet prophetic historic account in Genesis 22. You're familiar with it. Let's turn there. Turn backwards in your Bible to Genesis 22. You may know 
the record as it stands and, and what is going on is, is that uh, God in his relationship with Abraham has watched Abraham uh, from the time that he called him out to go to Haran, from Haran to go to, to the land of Canaan, has watched Abraham in his journey. Now, um, some of us might, we read in the book of Hebrews that Abraham never wavered. But be careful that you don't interpret that as that Abraham never made a mistake. Because Abraham did make two very clear and serious mistakes. Do you remember what they were throughout the course of his journey with God? One was in lying to a king about who Sarah was in his life, telling the king that Sarah was only his sister. And Sarah was almost, uh, could have been, could have been treated very badly if the king hadn't heard from God and, and exposed Abraham's lie. Why did you tell me she's just your sister when she's your wife? You know, and, and so here's this lesson that this uh, believer in the one true God lives out as he's walking along. How many of us can say, amen, I've made mistakes. I'm walking with God, but I, I still make many mistakes. And then he goes along for another while. And, and yes, he had been given a promise that he would be a great nation, that God would multiply him. But you remember his second mistake, actually, uh, his wife Sarah got involved in that and said, you know what, Abraham, God said you'd have a lot of children, but it's been like over 10 years. Uh, I'm barren. We're not. Having, why don't you take Hagar, my servant, and have children with her? And then that way, this promise that God made, can, let's help God out. <laughs> have you ever felt like you want to help God out? I know you promised me and you said you were going to do this and this, but I don't see it coming, Lord. Like, maybe I should just help you out. And you, if you've read that account, maybe you haven't, but it's important, to, again, to study and read it because what we find is that that's not what God wanted Sarah or Abraham to do. Abraham does go in and he does have a child by Hagar, and that child's name is Ishmael, and he becomes the father. And there's a promise of provision and, and care for that group of people, which we know to be, today to be as the entire Arab nation, which is still a very much a conflict with Israel. That's a whole other study and story. But oh my goodness. And yet we find that in God watching the life of Abraham, now stick with me here, because what did God promise Abraham? He said, uh, I'll bless you and I'll bless those who bless you and you will be great and, and in you. So God's watching him. He sees him make that mistake with Sarah and the king. He sees him make that mistake with Hagar and Ishmael. And then finally God brings Isaac. Sarah does conceive. And the promise that God made about from you will come descendants more than the number of the stars. And so Isaac is born. And, and as we come to chapter 22, Isaac is no longer an infant. He's not even a young boy. The grammatical language of the Hebrew text there would infer that 
Isaac is somewhere between 14 and 17, 12 to 17. I'll, I'll leave a little bit of room for grace in there. 13 to 17, somewhere in there. Could be even a bit older. Some of you who perhaps are better at linguistic specifics than me. But he's not a little boy. And God speaks to Abraham again and says, Now, I've, I've seen you. I know that you love me. I know that you want to obey me. Now, I want you to take your son, your only son, important language, and I want you to go to a mountain which I will show you, and I want you to offer him there as an offering, as a sacrifice to me. Uh, atheist and anti-Christian groups go wild on this particular section of Scripture because they say, well, what God would ask a man to take his son and go sacrifice his son. I mean, what kind of God is that? Uh, you can respond in a lot of ways, but one way you can respond is say, a God that would send his only son to die for you. And so he tells Abraham in chapter 22 there to, to take Isaac and go and, and offer him on the mountain, which I will show you. And so you've got this lad, Isaac, 14 to 17. They're walking along and, and evidently the act of worshiping God through sacrifice was familiar to Isaac because Abraham had done this before. He had built altars. And so they're walking along, and we pick it up in verse uh, 7. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. And then uh, Isaac says, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Dad, I see that we're carrying the wood to go make this offering. I see you have the, the flint sticks or whatever it's going to be. But we need, we need a lamb. Verse 8. And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Now, if you're taking note this morning, it's impossible to just pass by that verse without understanding technically, listen, technically, this is the way it reads in the Hebrew literature. God will provide himself a lamb. Rephrase it. God will be a lamb sacrificed. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming to the Jordan River? He said, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Well, Isaac, obedient son, Okay, I don't fully understand this, but they continue to walk on together. They come, verse 9, to the place in which God had told Abraham, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood, on the, in, placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar uh, upon the wood. Now, again, we have a, an old enough young boy, young man, who could, could have said, Dad, that's it. I mean, I'm glad you love God, but I'm not, you're not binding me up. But what we have here is a picture of an obedient son to the will of his father. It is a foreshadowed picture 
of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And so he doesn't understand what he's doing. I know God's asking, I don't understand. And the angel intervenes. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on your lad. Or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, lest you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. What is it that God Almighty might very well today ask you of which is precious to you? I'm not talking about human life. This is a principle of a, of a historical act that was intended to point us forward in history, his story, to Christ. But the principle is the same. What is it today that God might ask of you that you hold precious and dear to be willing to surrender to him? And the angel intervenes, speaking the angel of the Lord, it says, God himself is speaking through this angel. Now I know you, you didn't withhold anything. And Abraham lifted his eyes, verse 13, and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it uh, for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. As it is said to this day, notice the last few words of verse 14. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. History and archaeology tell us that on that same mountainous area, Golgotha existed and the cross of Calvary was there. When God Almighty, this same God, offered his son on a cross as the Lamb of God that would take away your sin and mine. It is so powerful. When God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself and sealed it with an oath. He did that here. Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you and your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall be possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. I believe, either you're watching at home or maybe you're in this, hearing the sound of my voice, that God has asked you to obey him in something and you have yet to obey. He's asking you this morning to surrender in something. Call it a word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and you have yet to obey. And he's saying, that I'm offering, I'm asking, I'm inviting. 
Some of you this morning might even be wrestling with the promise God gave you, a promise God gave you, or a word that God spoke to you, and, and time has gone on, and it's still not coming to fruition, or you, you see things differently than perhaps God sees it. Do you know how old Abraham was when Isaac was born? Do you know how old when Abraham, do you know how old Abraham was when he first received the promise? We're talking 25 years difference here. There is the giving of the promise and then the performance of the promise. And maybe some of us this hour, we're in that middle place where I know he promised me this, but gosh, I'm having trouble seeing it. So true in, in my life, in my household, and yet I, you know, I'm not giving you 25 years as the mark. Don't, you know, don't uh, say, okay, well, in 25 years, if it's not happening, then something different. I'm just saying there's a, there's a time gap in between when God is speaking a promise into your life and maybe when that promise uh, comes to fruition. For me, uh, I know for our household, uh, when we were thinking about coming here to Valley Springs, we left our family, gone down to Southern California for a couple of years, entered into a school of ministry. We were going to go to, we were going to, go to the Philippines. We were maybe going to go to Europe. We didn't know where in the States we might go to plant a church. Truly, we believe God was asking us to plant a church. It became clear that God was asking us to plant a church in Valley Springs. And as we moved forward in that, and we were praying through the idea of what it would mean to just come here and open up our home and start a Bible study, some of you are aware of this history. I remember very clearly God giving me one promise. He gave many to Sherry and I both. One promise from Hebrews 11.7. He said, by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household. And God spoke to me back then, this 20 plus years ago, that Art, what I'm saying to you is that by your obedience to come here, there's going to be spiritual fruit in, in your household. And our household is not without trial and hardship and, and turmoil in, a very, in, in various ways. But we've been blessed to see that promise come true. What is God promising you today? What are you in the middle of today? And so... Back to Hebrews 6, verse 14, that reminds us the author quoted what we just read in Genesis 12 and 22 to the Hebrew reader that when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, and then he quotes Genesis 22. And then we read kind of a summary in verse 15. It says, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. After he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. 
I was struck by the difference, the different use of the word. Some of you who like to study your Bible and study word, do uh, you notice up in verse 12, the exhortation was to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But in verse 15, we're, we're given Abraham's uh, as an illustration, and his experience was that after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Notice those two different words. As an inheritor of the promise, the promise is yours and mine. You've inherited it. It's there. It's, it's, it's a safe deposit box in a bank that you have the code and the key to, and you can go get the promises of God. Some of you, how many of you this morning by a show of hands, maybe you're, I, have, I have a book of promises on, on my shelf at home, you know. I mean, I think there's over like 500 promises, but of those promises, what have you obtained? It's a question. Certainly, we're reminded that the obtaining of that promise came after he was patient and after he endured. Then he gives this correlation so that the reader can understand and so that we can understand. In verse 16, he says, For men indeed swear by the greater... And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all dispute. He brings it down to uh, a playing field that we can all understand. An oath between men is the end of a dispute. It, it ends the discourse. It ends the conversation. There's an oath. We've made a pact. There's an oath. And so now he brings it back to that eternal and... Uh, omniscient and holy place where as it relates to the God of the Hebrew, the God of the Gentile believer in Christ, this one and true God. He says, thus God, verse 17, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise. Now, if you're taking note or marking your Bible, here's a couple of phrases to mark. God determining to show more abundantly. He is determined. Boy, did you, did you know God can be determined? I, this, here it is right here. It says God was determined to show, and not just to show in a little way, but to show more abundantly something to someone. What? We're going to get to that. Who? To the heirs of promise. He wants to show the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. You ever got out your Bible dictionary or a dictionary and read what immutability means? Say yes, please say yes. <laughs> Big word. Unchangeability. So God was determined to show in a huge way to the heirs of promise. Now then, to his writer at that moment, he's talking about God showing to the entire Hebraic nation of people, of his children. Now, as he's writing to the New Testament believer, 
He's saying God still has that determination to show to the heir of promise. Did we not read in Galatians that we are therefore heirs? The unchangeability of his counsel, that he changes not. And so he confirms that by an oath. That, in verse 18, by two immutable things. Notice, two unchangeable things. What would that be? His promise and the oath. That in which it is impossible for God to lie. He, he cannot lie as it relates to his word. And he cannot lie as it relates to his oath. That by these Two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Notice the word. Two letters. What does it say? Go ahead, say it. Go ahead, say it. Okay, follow me. Verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We. We. Who is he writing to? He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians. Therefore, the, the Spirit of God is writing to you and I. That we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Powerful verse. Oh my goodness, pregnant with meaning, application, God's promise and God's oath, he cannot lie about. So therefore, we, clearly speaking to the Christians in which he is writing to, who were of Hebrew descent but had come to Christ, clearly the word of God is writing to Christians all throughout the dispensation of the New Testament church, which would therefore include everyone in the sound of my voice that has given their life to Christ, everyone at home that is watching that has given their life to Christ and is now, by reason of that testimony and that confession, a Christian, that we might have. In other words, it's there for us to have. It's, it, it is availed to us. It exists that we might have strong consolation, those of us who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. What is strong consolation? I love what Charles Spurgeon writes as it relates to strong consolation. He says, strong consolation does not depend upon bodily health. Strong consolation does not depend upon the excitement of public service and Christian fellowship. Strong consolation can't be shaken by human reasoning. And strong consolation is stronger than a guilty conscience. He goes on to say, quote, It is a strong consolation that can deal with outward trials when a man has poverty staring him in the face, and hears his little children crying for bread, when bankruptcy is likely to come upon him through unavoidable losses, when the poor man has just lost his wife and his dear children have been put out in the grave, when 
one after another, all earthly props and comforts have given way. It needs a strong consolation then. Not in your pictured trials, not in your real, but in your real trials, not in your imaginary uh, whimsied afflictions, but in real afflictions and the blustering storms of life to rejoice then and to say, though these things be not with me as I would have them, yet he has given me an everlasting and strong consolation. God wants us to know a strong consolation. Those of us who have fled for refuge. I love that phrase because it has its application and its origin in Scripture. Do you know where that comes from? I mean, we've heard of refuge, you know, go for safety. But to flee for refuge. Where does that come from? Some of you know your, your Old Testament. The city of refuge. And there was a Numbers chapter 35. We're introduced to what's called the city of refuge. And it was a very important place. Because. When someone was unjustly accused. Of something. There was a, a high priest in a given city, and that city would be doned as a city of refuge that the, the uh, unjustly accused could run to and therefore be safe. Now, when the New Testament talks about the believer fleeing for refuge, there is, an, uh, there is a correlation with Jesus, but there is something that goes one step further, and I'll share with you. Because both the city of refuge meant safety, and Jesus, of course, means safety, but there's one defining difference. Listen to this. The city of refuge was within easy reach of the person that needed it. The city of refuge was open to all, not just to Israelites. The city of refuge was a place they went to live, not just go look at, but to put down roots and stay until the accusation and all of that was passed. The city of refuge uh, was the only alternative for the one that was in need. There was nowhere else they could go and be safe. The city of refuge provided protection within its boundaries. The city of refuge meant freedom as long as the individual stayed within the city. Jesus is within easy reach. He's here right now this morning saying, come to me. Jesus is open to all who would say, I believe that you are the son of God and you died on a cross for the penalty of my sin and you are willing to forgive me of my sin if I will confess that sin and come to you in faith. The city of refuge, Jesus is a, to, 
He's not somebody that we just go kind of observe and look at and uh, maybe I'll try it, maybe I'll... We're to vest ourselves in his life, to let him take up residence within us, that our hearts would become his home. He's the only alternative for those of us in need of salvation. There is salvation in no other. There's protection within his boundaries. Yes, trial. Yes, hardship. But protection within his boundaries. Freedom within his boundaries. I love what one commentator brings out, the key difference. He says, however, there is a crucial distinction between Jesus and the city of refuge. The cities of refuge only helped the innocent. Jesus helps the guilty. Hallelujah. You can say amen to that because we can run. We're guilty. And he says, come. He invites us to lay hold. It's a single act in the Greek grammar, what we call first aorist active. It's one action, not a combination of one action to where we, in one final definitive act, we lay hold of the hope in Christ. The hope set before us. And this hope we have. The author goes on to say, as we close our study this morning, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Verse 19, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Oh, beloved, the, the, the temple. Here the Hebrew would have immediately known what the author was talking about, the presence that was, that was indicative of the fact that, that God Almighty was there in the room. The Shekinah glory, at times the, the house would be so filled with the presence of God that the priest could no longer minister because of the Shekinah glory of God. Oh, that the glory of God would fall upon us from time to time, that no longer would we be distracted by what's out on the street beside us or what the siren that's going on down in the other part of town, but we would be so consumed with who God is in our midst that we could barely even minister. Some of us older saints who have experienced various times of revival, maybe you, you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced that in the privacy of your home where you began to pray and you just became overwhelmed with God's great grace. The presence behind the veil. Where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus. Here's what it's all about. It's about Jesus. He went ahead of us he enters for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And he, he's going to develop that fact in the next chapter. But he makes it clear that that presence of God, the need to go beyond the veil, to be in God's presence and be accepted in God's presence, has to do with one's relationship with Jesus Christ. Inheriting the hopes that before us. Powerful, powerful passage. Have you inherited it? Is he yours this morning? 
Will he be yours this afternoon? Will he be yours this week? Will you walk in the depth and the value and the truth of that? While we're closing in worship, if you have yet to commit your life to Christ, you can do it right now. You can do it right this moment. While we're closing in worship, if you've heard the Holy Spirit's nudge about something God is asking you to yet give up and surrender, whether it's simply a fear, an anxious thought, or maybe a, an active habit or something, and God is whispering to you, you know he is that nudge, nothing like the gentle but strong hand of the Holy Spirit nudging on heart. You can give it up right now while we worship. And I invite you to do so in either way. Let's close. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the great truth and insight that the author of Hebrews gives to each and every reader. And because your word is inerrant and infallible and authoritative and is the final authority of faith and practice to every believer, Lord, we come humbly this morning to it. Hearing its truth and its value. And we're reminded again that You are our living hope. And without you, we can do nothing. So Lord, we're here. Ready again just to place you on the throne of our lives throughout this week. To bless you and to worship you. We ask it Jesus' name. Amen.